welcome to the Birth Activists podcast, hosted by me, Becky Scott, and fellow doula and activist, Samantha Gadsden. Good morning, Samantha Gadsden. Morning, Becky. How are you today? Fine, thank you. How are you? Good. I'm good, thank you. Um, today we have the lovely Maddie McMahon with us. Good morning, Maddie. Good morning. How are you today? I'm all right. It's raining, which is absolutely brilliant. (laughs) Yes, we've been needing rain the last few days. It's just been far too hot, hasn't it? (laughs) Mm -hmm. So for those of you um, that don't know Maddie, Maddie is a doula based in Cambridge. Um, That's obviously not all you do, Maddie, I know. Um, Would you like to just tell us a little bit more about, you know, all the things you're involved in? Okay, um, <laughs> uh, so I've been a doula for 17 years. I always know how long I've been a doula because it's as long as my youngest daughter has been alive. Uh, did my doula course when she was a baby. Uh, and I have been a doula mentor with Doula UK for many years um, and run Developing Doulas, which is a doula preparation course. Um, and I'm trustee of a couple of charities, um, Cambridge Breastfeeding Alliance. Um, we're an alliance of, uh, Association of Breastfeeding Mothers, La Leche League, uh, and NCT. Uh, and we, before lockdown, ran a weekly group and we're now online, uh, supporting the mums of Cambridgeshire. Uh, and I'm also trustee of the embarrassingly named Maddie's Miracle charity, uh, which is a charity that is uh, aiming to have some mobile breastfeeding support vans to travel around the country to provide um, breastfeeding and parenting support to people uh, in geographical areas where it's difficult for them to access face-to-face support or in uh, areas where, you know, of, of poverty and deprivation um and during lockdown obviously that's not possible either so we're running a uh, support group uh where uh people all over the country can have free zoom sessions breastfeeding support uh with breastfeeding counselors so i should say i am also a breastfeeding counselor and have been uh for nearly as long as i've been a doula um with the wonderful association of breastfeeding mothers lovely thank you maddie we'll put links to to all those things in in the bio when we put the podcast up so that people can obviously go and check those out um especially maddie's miracle so obviously people can go and donate to that as well to to help that uh, and support that um program so you know listening to you there maddie and obviously you trained me six years ago which I have very fond memories of and you've always been a doula t- towards me so this is um, really lovely to have you on our podcast today um, and you know so obviously we're the birth activists so you would think that we were talking about births but actually what you've come on to talk to to, de- to us today is about your personal experience of cancer and um You've released your blog recently, The Eye of the Storm, Ocular Melanoma and Melanoma Melanoma, Maternity Care and Me. It's a mouthful to get your mouth round in the morning. (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) Sorry. And so, you know, just I would like you just to sort of maybe give us um, a little bit of an idea as to what sort of um, drew you to write this blog. Uh, and then we can maybe talk about how this does relate to to maternity care. Okay, I think obviously at the beginning, I wasn't thinking about maternity care. I was thinking about me. I was absolutely petrified. Um, just to make it clear for the listeners, um, I have what's called ocular melanoma which is an umbrella term for tumours that can be in various parts of the eye. Mine is behind the retina. Um, And it was found because I was getting visual disturbances and I went to to A&E and they sent me to the the eye clinic at Addenbrooke's in Cambridge, uh, which was where it was found. And obviously um, when someone says tumour, 
uh, your whole world falls apart. Uh, and so I was then sort of swept into the conveyor belt of cancer care, um, which in the NHS, uh, I have to say, is efficient uh, in terms of very, you know, it is a rule that you have to be seen and properly diagnosed within two weeks. Uh, and treatment has to start within a certain number of weeks after that. Um, and all of that worked seamlessly for me, despite COVID-19. Um, so I have a lot to be grateful for. Um, but as I started to go through the waiting and the treatment and the desire for information about my condition and the prognosis and what was going to happen to me and the chances of metastasis which is the posh word for the cancer spreading around your body with this particular cancer the risk is mostly to your liver but for some people lungs and skin as it's a melanoma um, I started to realise that I was beginning to experience a lot of the same things that my doula clients complain about. Um, and that really started me thinking about the fact that actually our activism, you know, all the stuff that we want to achieve for maternity services, a lot of it is, is NHS wide. Mm. Um, and it got me thinking about why that might be. And that it's not just as simple as throw more money at the NHS and it will provide the holistic care that we, that we want for people. Um, it goes a bit deeper than that. And so I started getting really passionate about um, telling the world what I felt I'd been missing out on as a patient. Mm. Um, and of course, you know, I, I'm a writer. I, that's what I do to process my thoughts and feelings. So it was logical for me to, um, to write that blog and it felt really cathartic because it felt like Maddie getting back to normal. You know, I yes. hadn't written a word since my diagnosis. So it was um, a symbolic act for me personally as well. Mm. Yes, like you've just said, you know, a lot of the things that you experience then is what our clients experience um, when they're accessing services. And so what's become apparent then from what you've said is that it's not just maternity services, it's the whole of the health service. And, you know, from, from accessing it to treatment to aftercare. Um, do you want to maybe just give us an idea of, of some, you know, some examples of, of where that happened for you? So, for example, um, you know, that first sort of contact, those first appointments. Well, I think um, the most, the, the biggest thing for me was signposting or the lack yeah. of. So I had to find the charity that is the patient support group for ocular melanoma by myself by googling and that wouldn't necessarily have occurred to me unless I was a doula and had learned that for most conditions there is a patient support group that's often a charity um, and I found Ocumel UK that is the most amazing charity and they provided me with a free counsellor a counsellor who works um, specifically with people with ocular melanoma so she's not just a counsellor she's got that medical knowledge of the condition she knows what we're going through specifically so that was amazing the the NHS could have told me about them yes and it also like you're able to google you've got internet to access, internet access you've got the ability you've got you know not everybody can, as well as not being a doula, not everybody's going to even have the ability to go home and Google. And that's really yes, quite sad. Exactly. So if it weren't for Ocumel UK, I would have never found out that there is a particular type of screening test that is much more sensitive and evidence-based to check for liver metastasis uh, than the test that the NHS was offering me. 
And so that and just that, demonstrates, doesn't it, that the same with maternity care is that you're not actually given all your options. You're, you're told this is what happens rather yeah. than being told that there are other options available to you. Absolutely. Yes. So, you know, in, in, according to my consultant at my local hospital who would have been giving me that screening test, uh, I'm low risk. Therefore, I don't get to have that particular test. Um, but the fact is, A, she doesn't know how low risk or high risk I am because I have opted not to have uh, a biopsy to find out whether my tumour is of the aggressive kind. Uh, so I need to be treated as if I am high risk because they don't know. Mm. Uh, and secondly, it's not taking into account the patient's mental health. Yeah. The anxiety that you know now i know that ultrasound is not the best form of surveillance how could i sleep at night knowing that i've only had that and that they might have missed something so do you think that's a reason why they don't tell you these other options because that they don't want you to know that there are other options well it's really hard for us to see inside uh, doctors heads isn't it Yes. And it, we, we're experienced enough doulas to know that there's an awful lot of stuff going on that isn't only about what's in the best interest of the patient. Yes. So me not being offered an MRI on the NHS was as much to do with COVID-19 and resources and money and um, local guidelines you know yeah. things written on bits of paper by doctors in this hospital without necessarily taking into account nice guidance or the most up-to-date evidence and, and i think the point time. is sorry sam you go i wonder sometimes you know i say to people something that's been coming up quite recently in the home birth group is low waters and i say um it's come up a number of times so i'm not identifying anybody because it's a common thread um, and I say well if you drink two to two and a half litres of water your waters might come back up especially in this heat oh my doctor said no the consultant said no and I think is the consultant that stupid that he doesn't know there are options or is he just lying like like which way round is it are they not telling the truth or do they not know either one isn't brilliant but I don't even know anymore if they actually know it right. No, I don't know either. I have absolutely no idea. Mm. Um, you know, I, I had to send YouTube videos of, of um, expert research, researchers in the field talking at conferences to, to doctors to try and um, get them to give me the test that I wanted, but it, it didn't work. And in the end, I went private and I shouldn't have had to. No, no. You, you shouldn't. Absolutely. I think the, and also we all know that, you know, you, the decisions we make are only as good as the information we have at the time. So, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't put doctors in a great light because if they haven't got any other information that, you know, other than what they're currently using, then that obviously, you know, raises a few red flags there. Um, but, you know, it's really not down to the, to the patient to go and look for the evidence and, you know, see, what else there is out there you know even if it's not provided on the nhs service really they should be able to give you that all-round sort of um you know all the resources that you need to be to be able to make a decision going yeah. forward with your treatment exactly. and i think that's you know i i accept that there is a personality type you know we've all had clients who feel safe when they're on the conveyor belt yeah when they don't want information and they don't want to question and they just want to relax into the arms of the NHS yeah. and they feel safe in that kind of situation. But I think doctors need to accept that not all of us have that personality and that telling patients not to Google um, <laughs> is, is paternalistic and patronizing um, because we're going to. Yes. When they say we're going to go home and Google, and and I I absolutely understand where they're coming from. Some of the things that I have read, I wish I hadn't. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and I am not medical or scientific enough to interpret what I've read to individualize it for my situation. So there's things I now know that are scary, but um, that's my choice and I have made that choice. And actually what I would have liked is a doctor to help me sort through that information and give me the time and space to talk it through. Yeah, and one of those and, things that would help that then, Maddie, would be having, you know, one, one person, one healthcare professional that you can build that relationship with, like, you know, us as doulas and birth workers, we get, we're, we're there as that continuous person during that journey with, with the, the couple or, or the birthing person. And so for you as a patient, you know, did, did you experience that? Did you have this one person that you could contact and talk to or was it, it, was it a little bit more disjointed? So to give my specialist hospital their due, so I'm under Moorfields in London, it's a specialist eye hospital. Um, they really try. They have specialist oncology nurses. Um, unfortunately, literally days after my diagnosis, one of them went off long-term sick. I'd met her the day I went for my diagnosis and really bonded with her. I mean, she's a doula at heart um, and really was came away feeling so positive that I was going to be able to ring her up whenever I felt anxious or I had questions um, and then she disappeared and the other specialist nurse only worked two days a week and that gap wasn't filled by the NHS presumably because the NHS did not see that as priority or important the the, the mental health of cancer patients is obviously not seen as a priority enough to make sure those staff are, are available. And the difference it has made to my state of mind since she came back to work and phoned me immediately um, and has answered loads of questions that feel silly you, you know when you have clients and they ring you up and they say I've got a silly question and you say there are no silly questions just ask away it doesn't matter and how better they feel after that I've been storing all of that up and trying to google answers and not finding anything because my condition is so rare it's less than five in a million wow um there, there's very little online about it mm. um so for her to come back and be a listening ear that's all she was was a listening ear so no I, I haven't had that uh and I haven't had any continuity with any doctor that I have spoken to mm. during my treatment or afterwards in fact I have yet to even see a doctor after my treatment and you know I, that's go, back, I go back to my my eldest has got eczema yeah, well, he's got a lot of things, but he's got really severe eczema. And when he was a child, we had a GP. We saw the same GP. But whenever his eczema would flare, the GP knew him, and he'd pull up his notes, and, but he would know him already. And he would know if it was worse. And he would know because, and even even just like with basic health care now, we don't even see the same GP. I don't know what it's like where you live, but here, you get one out of about eight GPs in the practice. And it's just not... The same not seeing the same person no. and you're experiencing that with cancer yeah. yeah and it's the same in the in maternity isn't it we know as doulas yeah. that you know we see often we'll we'll go to a birth before um before a midwife would think about going before that person would think about going to hospital if that's there if that's what was happening um and so we see that person you know going through the transition that, that you know they make through that through the labor and through birth and so we are better able to to assess the progress from the outside and, and sort of see those changes happening. Um, and, and, you know, so, you know, there are obvious benefits to that. And like you said, Sam, having that relationship with, where your GP knows exactly uh, what's happening um, and so can, you know, obviously judge. If, if you go into somewhere and have a half an hour appointment with somebody, that they can only see what's in front of them and they haven't then seen, seen the difference. So many of our clients go to um, consultants appointments in inverted commas and they don't even see their consultant. Yeah. They see a registrar 
and that registrar hasn't even bothered to read their notes. And they're yeah. not told it's a registrar. That's yeah. the one that gets me, because they think they're seeing a consultant. And yeah. they come and speak to me afterwards, and I say, who did you see? And I say, and then they tell me what they say, and I say, I think you need to check if that was a consultant. And most yeah. of the time, it's not a consultant, and nobody has had the respect to tell them who they're even seeing. That's right. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the same thing has happened to me. My follow-up appointment after my hospital treatment um, was by phone with somebody. And she didn't even bother to introduce herself. So I didn't even know her name, let alone who she was. And then she said, I'm a fellow. And I had no idea what that meant. No, I wouldn't either. <laughs> no, what is a fellow? Well, as far as I can make out, it's the, that particular part of the NHS's equivalent of a registrar. I, I, but I still don't know. In my mind, a fellow is you know, a teacher at, in a university college. Right. So, yeah. And in my mind, it's just a man. If you see what I mean, I'm like, what's a fellow? Yes. What's a man? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I'm so guessing I think... Patients need help with NHS uh, jargon as well, don't yeah. we? To help us kind of navigate our way through what is exactly happening to us and who we're talking to. So, and I, obviously, when I when I read your blog, um, you know, one thing that you've just been talking about there with seeing so many different people is that on a number of occasions you had to repeat everything, and that goes obviously just what you said in that they're not reading the notes, but also you wouldn't have that if you were seeing the same person every time. Exactly. And when what you're trying to communicate is really emotional, that's devastating and traumatizing. So, you know, thinking about a woman maybe who's trying to explain why she doesn't want vaginal exams and she has to do that over and over again. Um, My personal example was that because of COVID-19, they were very... They are currently um, very loath to do general anaesthetics mm. because of the risk of transmission if you're COVID-19 positive. So they very much persuaded me to have deep sedation, uh, except the sedation didn't really work on me. And I was very, very conscious and very aware of the operation on my eye to put in the radioactive plaque is called it's a a metal disc that's stitched to your eyeball um so as you can imagine being awake and conscious for that was extremely traumatic Mm. and then three days later you have to have it out and so there's another operation and i was every single person that came into my room during the time that i was being treated i tried to explain how traumatized i'd been and that I wanted to talk to an anaesthetist about um, being sedated more, mm. having more pain relief or, you know, I wanted to be less aware of what was happening. Uh, and no one really would listen or hear. I didn't feel heard. No. I didn't have anybody say, oh my goodness, yes, that sounds really horrid for you. I didn't have anybody um for a long time really hear me about how much discomfort i was in and it took a full 24 hours before someone realized that they had scratched my cornea during the operation um which is you know a rare but known side effect of the operation and so i didn't get the pain relief that i needed for a long time and then nobody give me a general anaesthetic really well it was just like in like what we see with our clients it was emotional coercion so yes you can have a general anaesthetic but your husband's on his way to come and get you and then you wouldn't be able to go home tonight with your husband stay another night and so then you're emotionally kind of pushed towards and of course the second operation was even worse because this time I could actually even see the instruments coming towards my eye and you knew as well so you knew about the pain from last time so you got that additional yeah yeah, yeah. and it, 
it's not as serious and it is what our clients experience. I was with a client who's had to sit in and was constipated and she was telling the midwife she was constipated. She knew she was constipated because she'd had constipation issues in pregnancy and the midwife was, oh no, it's wind. Oh no, it's wind. Oh, I'll get you some peppermint tea. And then my client's saying, but I'm constipated, I can feel it. And I'm in agony because I just had a cesarean. Oh no, it's wind. And then we had, she literally had to wait for a shift change before anybody would listen to her. And then we had a shift change, we had a different midwife and the midwife helped her and problem yeah. solved, which could have been yeah. solved hours. It's not as serious, obviously, but it is to that woman, you know, to that woman that is. It is. And that's the point, Sam. It doesn't matter what's going on with you. The emotions are the same. The anxieties are the same. The discomfort is real. And when you put a layer of not feeling heard on top of that, mm. um, actually people can be left with trauma symptoms. Um, absolutely. Yeah, and fear enhances everything. So it makes everything more painful. So we, it all it all feeds each other, doesn't it? And it's cruel. You know, it's just it cruel. A lot of what I'm reading about the NHS in this is, is just cruel. And, and I can't find my, myself ways to dress it up. I've read your blog, I read it before and I read it again this morning and I was just reading it and just shaking my head because to me it's just lacking in basic humanity from people mm -hmm. who think they're giving as much as they can. And maybe they are. Maybe they're just so under-resourced that they can't give what they need to give. But that doesn't mean we have to accept it. Yes. And I think also, yeah. you know, like you've said, and like we all know as, as, as doulas and birth workers, is that sometimes people aren't, ask, aren't asking for a resolution. Often they just want someone to listen to them, to share that burden with somebody. And, you know, as a postnatal doula, I've often gone to, to people's houses and literally just sat and had a cup of tea and listened. And that's all that was needed. And sometimes yes. I think that, you know, healthcare professionals aren't, uh, willing to listen to give that time because they think that it's going to lead to something that they have to do yeah so they're less likely to want to listen but you know as we know um you know and, and the language as well uh like you were saying about the coercive lang language there uh maddie it wasn't put in a way that it, you know yes you've got the option to do that it was like oh well it's not the best option for you because and actually, listening to you saying that, we've been victims of serious crime and um, we never got the support that we needed. And I felt very much what you just said, nobody wanted to listen because they might have to do something. And it was the sort of thing where you would expect people to be listening, quite seriously listening, and nobody listened and, and the children suffered as a result. And it was, I always felt that it was because they didn't want to help because they didn't want to do it. And to the point now where if a health, uh, if a service provider like bugs me and gets on my nerves, I'll actually mention it because they run away. And then they, they like, if I want them to go away, it's a really effective way of getting rid of them. Of saying, well, it is this thing. And then they're like, oh, well, okay, we'll just go now because they don't <laughs> have anything. So it, it gets, it gets them to go away. Like, bye. We might <laughs> Yes. Um, you know what, in so many cases, if a patient is actually carefully listened to, it's going to save time and resources in the long run? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I've seen that in so many cases. And I, I've worked in the NHS myself in maternity. And, um, you know, like, I've seen people say, oh, you know, someone rings the buzzer, no one wants to answer it because they think they're going to have to do something. You know, and, and you know, and, and just... From my own personal experience actually going and talking to someone and listening to them and actually seeing what their needs are because often the needs of someone are actually assumed so even before they've spoken to that yeah. person they say oh they want that oh I'm, you know i can't be bothered because all they want is that whereas actually they don't know exactly. what that person wants and often, as we know um often people will will come to you with, with what they think is their problem but actually when you dig a little deeper and listen a little harder then actually it's not that sometimes it's something completely yeah. different it feeds into my blog, it's called, they didn't even give me a cup of tea. And it was based on a midwife I overheard moaning about a woman. Oh God, that woman wants a cup of tea and I'm so busy. She didn't want tea, she wanted company and she wanted somebody to hold her hand and she was frightened and she was alone. And now yeah. we've got the PPG monitors that can monitor from nurses' banks, from midwife bank stations. Women are left alone for longer and, and they ask for a cup of tea because they can't verbalise, I want 
all of those things. And they, sometimes they don't even realize. They just think, well, if I ask for a cup of tea, someone will come and see me. And, you know, it was that dismissiveness. That's right. Absolutely. And then you've got all of these signs around hospitals saying um, physical and verbal aggression will not be tolerated. We have a zero tolerance policy around here, blah, de, blah, de, blah. And you think, well, I wonder why there's such a problem. And obviously it's never acceptable for a member of the public to physically or verbally threaten a member of staff. But those instances are so often the end result of a whole raft of frustration, oh, loneliness. I was talking about that yesterday. My mother-in-law, my mother-in-law was very deferential. She was bloody awkward, right? Let me tell you. But she was very deferential to anybody she perceived as being in a position of authority. And mm. she had an operation in hospital and they wrote in her notes that she was something kind of aggressive i can't remember the other word i was like what you know that just didn't read right. and the thing is that was in her notes for every nurse everybody who was caring for her one of the first things they saw was that she was aggressive and i and i got to the bottom of it and it turned out she'd come around from a general anesthetic and all she wanted was some water because she was really dehydrated and nobody was listening to her and she threw a plastic cup in frustration because she just couldn't get and that was enough but her i went mad i contacted her I had her changed wards and all sorts. But, you know, it was just that automatic assumption that it wasn't that she wanted something or she needed something. It was that automatic assumption that as an old woman, she was just awkward and a pain in the ass. And it was hard. Yeah. And she was really upset to read that in her notes because she's not. Yeah. And what, okay, what she you, was, but. And what you said there about, um, about that being written in your notes as well, it happens so often, I hear it a lot, is that women don't want to be um, that person. They don't want to be that person that complains, that person that is always wanting things. And because, the, you know, they've been made to feel like that. They know it's going to be written in their notes. And so the next person's going to see it. And then they're going to obviously have that, that preconceived idea of what that person's going to be like. Uh, and they're going to be treated That's differently. Right. Exactly. And you know what? Even me, who has all this experience as a doula, uh, volunteers for AIMS, I, I know my rights and I know what the NHS is and isn't allowed to do. Um, I have fed back to pals at that hospital and the guy at pals said, well, you know, we can actually do something with this feedback if you make it a formal complaint, which by the way, I think is idiotic because yeah. I don't necessarily want to complain. I just want to give them constructive feedback for yeah. them to listen to that so that this stuff doesn't happen to anybody else. Um, even I am thinking, oh God, now it's a formal complaint. I wonder if that's going to impact on my care. Yeah, absolutely. And you shouldn't have to make a formal complaint to be listened to. No. And the complaint process is long and arduous and difficult. And we all know that it usually ends up in that sort of friendly NHS and not really getting very far. So it, exactly. yeah. And yeah, I also, I also think, I'm sorry you feel that way. Yeah. AIMS, for anybody listening who doesn't know, is the Association for Improvement in Maternity Services. And we'll and definitely put a link in there for that one. <laughs> um, okay, so you touched earlier as well on your, your sort of your mental health, uh, you know, from the point when you were diagnosed through, through your treatment. And obviously you're, you're in the aftercare sort of stages right now. Um, you know, I think it's very much the same in birth, and you've said this in your blog, is that when you go into hospital and you have a treatment, the, the sort of focus is on the pathology. And it's not looking at that person's mental health. It's not looking at them um, in a holistic way as an individual. Um, and so, you know, that can have, we, we know there's a really close, you know, connection between mind and body and that, you, you know, mental health is affected by your physical and your physical is affected by your mental health. It's all interconnected and, and we know that mental health is, is really important. So, um, yeah, the fact that, that um, when you go to hospital, whether it's maternity or for any other kind of treatment, you're looked at as a body, really. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, what you've said, from what you've said, Buddy, is, is, you know, it's the same in maternity. Women are looked at as a vessel. Literally a vessel. And I talk about this a lot. The only performance indicator, really, really, that anybody cares about is stillbirth. 
all the other things, mental health, PTSD, birth trauma, 40%. Nobody cares about any of that. And there's only one indicator that anybody sees as important. And I'm not saying stillbirth isn't important, but it's not the only important thing. But no. it is the only thing that anybody really, it's the only thing they're the pinnacle isn't it from yes. from it seems like from the nhs's point of view maternity services the pinnacle of their aspirations is an alive mother and an alive baby mm -hmm. and obviously as birth activists we're saying no that's the bare minimum that we should be expecting from the nhs yeah um, and i definitely feel the same way you know like just like a uh, so many of our clients feel like a uterus on legs yeah i yes. felt like i'm an eye with a body attached uh, and everyone's just interested in that and not in anything else. So along with, I have to say, the great way that I was spoken to by the consultant at Moorfields when I was diagnosed, he was very calm. He was very positive about the uh, prognosis for my treatment. Uh, I came away feeling very, very reassured. But in retrospect, I really could have done with a bit more talk about health and what I could be doing. Yeah. So rather than just sitting on my sofa at home, waiting to go back for treatment, what could I be doing in the meantime for my mental and physical health? And yeah. as you said, Becky, mind and body is connected. He very fleetingly said that in his opinion, people with a positive attitude had better outcomes which was great but how how do I how does a patient get to that place you don't just say to yourself right I'm going to have a positive attitude you need help and support to get there and it kind of smacks a victim blaming language you know if you didn't have a positive outcome you kind of didn't you weren't positive yeah. enough it's a bit like and that's shown yeah. in maternity yeah. as well I mean especially during COVID which has been a lot worse is that the first you know thing that went was the postnatal services it's like well you've got your baby off you go sort of job and and you don't need any more help that's it um, and, and, and we know obviously there's been um you know quite a lot in in, in the press and in the media about postnatal uh, maternal mental health uh, quite recently uh, and so it is being recognized but still you know even when we're in a global pandemic it's the first thing that goes it's just not doesn't seem to be um valued that you know that kind of support is really really needed i don't think it's ever been valued i've seen too many instances where women are, are labeled as uncooperative or difficult or social services end up involved but what is very clear to somebody with experience is significant birth trauma um, and instead of the trusts wanting to accept responsibility that they have harmed this person to the point that maybe they're not focused, they're not functioning as well as they should be with their baby. And this is particularly prevalent in Wales because Wales doesn't have a single maternal mental health bed. So all of our women who need, um, who need to be in have to be sent out, not just out of our county, but out of our country into mm -hmm. England. We have women sent all over the place we've got an arrangement with bristol but if you're in north wales bristol is like the, literally the other side of the uk um our women are separated from their babies or at the very least they're separated from their families and of course when you're talking about an out of country placement it's over 40 50 000 pounds nobody wants to do it so those women do not get the care that they need and then they get offered birth afterthoughts yeah mm. and it's like so it's about, for me, this thought process is about helping people to express their normal physiology as well as addressing the pathology. Yes. So, you know, if you've got a woman with pregnancy complications who we all accept would probably be safer in a labour ward with doctors outside the door or with, you know, who's carrying a baby who they know is possibly going to need NICU care afterwards, after birth. Um, of course, we need that extra medical surveillance there, but it does not mean that we cannot talk to that woman and have the staff support her to express normality as much as possible 
if she wants to. So With if you have severe gestational diabetes, for example, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be lying on your back in a bed in delivery unit. Yeah. Can, without your partner. Without your partner. Do all these things. So we need to be bringing home birth and birth centre birth into our obstetric units yeah. so that we can talk about health and normality as well as pathology. I think that the point there is that when you talk about harming somebody, um, you know, whether it's it's more societal rather than just healthcare, is that it's seen as physical. Well, I, you don't, I hope people don't talk about harm in terms of harming someone, you know, on a mental side of things. No, and legally speaking, that really doesn't exist, does it? Mm, you know, you wouldn't uh, yeah. get um, any legal firms taking on a you know, a woman to sue the NHS for, for um, mental harm. Nice. Well, I think, I think the NHS is able to hide behind that. Um, I think the fact that it's all individual trusts. So, for example, inducing somebody for a big baby that's not big. So that, you know, and some of the, one, one of the examples I shared a couple of months ago, the baby was 13 weeks old before it reached its estimated birth weight. And, you know, if we could take a class action with all of those people, who are harmed emotionally and physically through this, but we can't because it's one trust here and one trust there and one trust the other. I know. I, I just, I have such um, split feelings about litigation because, you know, on one level, I, I hear you, Sam, I, you know, I sometimes feel like if everyone who's had their breastfeeding relationship sabotaged or their birth sabotaged um, sued, you know, we'd quickly get a different um, thing. But on the other level, you know, a lot of the over intervention that we campaign against is defensive practice because they're worried about being sued. Because mm. in a court of law, your defense is that you did something, not that yeah. you sat on your hands and let that woman's physiology play out as nature intended. But yeah. if they were actually sued for the harm that they do by doing, because I used to think like you, we shouldn't sue the NHS. But to be honest, I'm reading too much now where they're causing too much harm and never being held to account and kind of, oh, oh, well, you've got a healthy baby. And the thing that frustrates me the most is the number of people I've supported with induction and shoulder dystocia. And then they're recommended to have another one when the chances are, uh, and, and it's not, oh, well, the induction might have caused that. It's, oh, look, we were right. We were mm -hmm. right to induce you, and I am getting increasingly self-perpetuating, self isn't it? Yeah. And then yeah. the other thing we haven't mentioned is the disability discrimination. You know, this this thing of keeping women with additional needs whose partners are their official carers out of, out of their wards. You know, yeah, so not... Maddie, how did it affect you? Because I know that obviously yeah. um, your husband wasn't allowed in for a lot of the time as well. How did you find that? Um, it was really, really scary. And I remember actually sitting there thinking, oh, my God, this is this is how it is to be induced at the moment in COVID. Mm. So we that and you're in a wheelchair. Mm. Yeah. 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 I, you know, I, we arrived and he was looked at and said, what are you, you know, someone said, what are you doing here? Um, so, he had to, you know, they, they let him settle me in for five or ten minutes and then kicked him out in the ward i didn't know where i was who these people were whether this was where i was going to stay what was going to happen next when i was going to have my operation you know that it was i was just left to sit in a room by myself Real and then, communication there, then. Exactly. So it was just, you know, just like how we see in maternity services, the anaesthetist comes on, comes in to consent you, uh, you, you know, and, and you're just on this conveyor belt. If I'd been met at the door by somebody who said, hi, my name's Sally, I'm going to be the, the nurse who looks after you through this whole process. This is where you're going to wait for a bit. And then we're going to take you upstairs to theatre. And I'm going to be with you in theatre. And then I'm going to be with you in recovery. It would have made a whole world of difference. Mm. And I could have possibly, you know, uh, borne my husband being sent away so quickly and him not being there when I came out of the theatre. Oh, I'm so I sorry. imagine it was very difficult for him as well, Maddie. Yeah. 
yeah it was it was awful and actually mm -hmm. I, you know i have i have so many things to thank all my doulas all my lovely doula friends for um but the fact that one doula friend gave him a flat in london to sleep in that night Oh, so I could at least feel like he was close, Aww. even if he wasn't with me. You know, it was one of the, the tiny things that had made a massive difference to my emotional state. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, a lot of time partners are um, ignored and not felt, you know, important, especially in maternity, whereas actually, you know, they're a massive part of, um, you know, that, that person's experience with birth. Apart from the fact that it's their baby, generally, that you yeah. know they want to be there to support their partner and that partner needs that support there well i've spoken to women who are frightened and unfortunately there's not a lot you could do who are particularly women who are wheelchair bound i've spoken to quite a few in this um who are frightened the staff are going to disappear with their baby because their partner's not there mm. that they're going to be overridden that women who want to breastfeed for example on meds um they, they are concerned, rightly or wrongly, and unfortunately I wouldn't even say that they're wrong to be concerned, um, that people, they'll just be overruled. Sometimes they'll just yeah. take their baby and give it formula against their wishes, and because they're wheelchair-bound or they can't get out of bed or they've just had a caesarean, they won't be able to do anything about it. And that is enhanced by their partner not being there. I've yeah. heard, heard report locally where someone's needed to go to a different part of the hospital for, for some reason and have been told to just leave the baby on the ward in the cot. Yeah, and then the other thing that I've had them raise concerns about is, like with shift change and everything, if they can't handle their baby for whatever reason, is if their partner was there, their partner could be the one person handling the baby, but they have to tolerate loads and loads of different people handling their baby, increasing as far as these women are concerned, women and birthing people, their risk of COVID, because there's so many different people handling their baby, and they don't want it, and they're not listened to, and oh, sorry. I could yeah. <laughs> could be here for hours. Oh, we could all be here for hours talking about it. And the it. fact that it's sustaining cancer services. And I went with my friends when she had cancer treatments, and I've seen how busy those wards are. Like, I've seen how busy, or at least where, where she was, how busy it was. There was no time for individual care. No. 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 And I think, I think problem. It, it kind of brings us on, I think, to the next point that I made in my blog. Blob. Blog about um gentle hands and mm. you know that really resonated with me with what i've seen in maternity care as well and the enormous difference between those midwives that really stand out in the way that they have a loving touch yeah um, a healing touch yeah. a touch that makes a woman feel um uh comforted even if what's happening yeah uh, with much is is one of discomfort that's going to cause them discomfort so after my operation because it's a radioactive plaque that stitched to your eye you then have a lead plate put over your face uh, and then a big dressing and and every kind of couple of hours or so somebody has to come in the room and take the dressing off and put eye drops in uh, and the eye drops sting um, and the whole area is, as you can imagine, incredibly tender. Mm. And I really felt the difference between the people who came in and did it in a utilitarian way yeah. and the ones who came in and were gentle and spoke to me. Remember, my sight was impeded. Mm. I had only one eye and, you know, at night time, it was dark in the room. I needed somebody to come in and is it all right to come in and my name's so-and-so and I'm here to put in your eye drops. How are you feeling? Is it okay if I take this dressing off? I'm just going to do it slowly because it's sticky and it hurts this tender area. You ask, you tell me if you want me to stop at any time. Is that okay? How's that feeling? I mean, you know, this is, should be standard, but yeah. I had one angel in three days who came once and then disappeared so that must have just been her bank shift or something um yeah but the rest of the time it was scary yeah scary and i didn't feel like i was special to them 
yeah it's just part of their daily job just yeah yeah mm. just like well okay if you have this attitude to your work why don't you just go and stack shelves in tesco's mm. and that you know that's i don't feel like it's too much to ask to feel like you're being touched by your mother mm. no absolutely as you're saying that maddie it's just reminded me of my first birth and i had a particularly brutal midwife give me an, a, a vaginal examination during my induction and she basically i mean i was you know crying out in pain and she basically said well if you just relaxed it wouldn't hurt so much and then walked off um and and the next midwife that came in obviously i was very scared about having another vaginal examination there was a, a lovely um chinese lady she was really really soft and gentle and, and i remember her just saying to me it's okay i have little hands and she was just so so gentle and it wasn't painful at all i just thought you know if, if that person that midwife before that had taken that time to just be a little bit more gentle a little bit more compassionate and understanding it wouldn't be half as bad and you know she traumatized that much that i i took her name and it was on passed on my birth plans after that that she was in no way to come anywhere near me or i wouldn't be responsible for my actions <laughs> But, you know, there are people going through this all the time in maternity services, having yeah, this slap, yeah. slapdash care. And it's just like, well, you know, this is like the thousands BE I've, I've done. So what's the big problem sort of idea? I've spoken to midwives. I, I've spoken to midwives. I've actually spoken to midwives who didn't want people to know that they'd spoken to a doula. Um, but I've spoken to midwives who have told me that when they got pregnant themselves, and this is where they say it doesn't make any difference if you've had a baby or not, medically, maybe not. But I've spoken to midwives who've told me themselves that it wasn't until they got pregnant that they realised how invasive what was being done to women actually was because they didn't know if they wanted it to happen to them. And yeah. so it, I'm not saying for all midwives it makes a difference, but to those midwives that spoke to me, then it made a very clear difference that they understood now what they were asking women to do yeah in a way that they just didn't understand before it's, yeah. it's an empathy isn't it it's deeper understanding of what that individual's going through and that goes for any part of the nhs really and that's not to say that men and women people who haven't had babies can't make excellent midwives i'm just saying it's a quality that can come with understanding yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously empathy doesn't always or have to come from shared experience um there are other ways of of um enhancing empathy and training can have a, a big impact can't it you yeah. know doing the doing ve's on people in your training where those people have volunteered and they're going to give you really really good constructive feedback um yeah. has got to be better than uh plastic models and often you'll find well i've i've noticed is that you know it's it's blamed on the discomfort someone is feeling is blamed on their physiology on their body rather yeah. than it being the actual you know what the midwife's doing yeah yeah and on their lack of i've supported a number of survivors who can't wear masks can't wear masks yeah not won't the word here is can't and the lack of understanding that they are given I had one, I, I spoke about it, so I know she's come to, on my business page. She was told to go away and practice, practice triggering her own PTSD symptoms until she could wear a mask by a sonographer. And it's like practice. Though she has a PTSD reaction and a meltdown and there's nobody there and she's looking after her other children, that's okay because the sonographer is more comfortable. That's just lack of training, isn't it, Sam? Yeah. Well, it's lack of understanding and lack of training. All of this comes down to training and, and awareness raising amongst... And I think understanding that supporting survivors, I do think a lot of people go on training courses, but they're just another training course. It's just another day's training course that they've been on. They don't sit down and really think about what they've learned. It's, it's and, also they, and also they deal with the standard, don't they? The, the average, the standard. They don't talk about the what-ifs and, and, you know, this person's individual experience, that person's individual experience. And that's what's missing from the holistic care. Exactly. And I think, you know, I think that this awareness, especially about survivors, really needs to, to grow amongst mm. staff because what I would like everybody to understand is that uh, not every patient goes into the NHS aware that what's happened to her might 
be triggered by her treatment, it certainly didn't occur to me that uh, having an operation and being in hospital for three days, yeah. uh, which you know has never happened to me other than having babies, I've never been in hospital before, um, that as a survivor of serious sexual assault, that I would be triggered. Yeah. I didn't, and I, and I didn't know that was what was happening to me when I was yeah. in hospital. I didn't understand why I was so scared and so um, and felt so vulnerable. But that it's that lack of being violated, isn't it? Yeah, and, and when you don't feel in control, when you yeah. feel like somebody else has control over your body. Yeah. While fighting cancer, which to a certain degree is losing control of your own body. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a trigger in itself, isn't it? You know, you have been invaded. Yeah. By something that is not you. Well, yeah. yeah. Weirdly not you. It's part of you. It's very strange. Yeah. It's you, but not you. Yeah. So it sounds, Maddie, that this journey for you um, has obviously just compounded really what you already knew as a doula in terms of maternity services, but, you know, widened that to... And I guess that's probably why you wanted to come and talk about it was that it's, you know, it's not just maternity services. It's just health care in general at the moment. Absolutely. And of course, you know, that affects our clients often, doesn't it? When they have to access different parts of the hospital during a maternity journey. Yeah. Um, then there needs to be consistency between the departments there needs to be sharing of information there needs to be smooth admin there needs to be good communication between doctors um, and uh, we don't see that happening and i haven't seen that happening at all i mean in the old days my gp would have phoned me just to say how are you doing yeah because he would have heard, presumably, what was yeah. going on. He would have had, you know, I mean, he gets copies of letters, um, but that doesn't actually really give him much information. And goodness knows what he, what he must be thinking, because if he's got a, a copy of every letter that's been sent to me, um, then he must be very, very confused, because my admin journey has been ridiculously chaotic with appointments made and then cancelled appointments made without telling me uh yeah appointment people telling me that i needed face-to-face -face appointments and then other people saying no you should you shouldn't be having face-to-face -face. they should be telephone consultation it's been absolutely um appalling um so you know one person really who could be taking an overview of your holistic care is the gp yeah but that doesn't seem to be happening anymore i guess in, in especially in in hospital really you're you know and, and all patients all people that access the services are a hospital number and yeah. you know a lot of the a lot of the systems are automated and are not are not personalized so like you said maddie you know when someone cancels an appointment you'll automatically get a letter saying it's cancelled and then you know you're either just given another appointment or you have to ring up and then you know you, you and people don't have access having worked in in, in the health uh, in in a, a hospital trust i i've worked in admin as well and i know what it's like and it's there is no communication you you know often when you're writing letters and sending it to people you don't have access to the rest of the notes so you don't see all that you just doing a letter and sending it out to a person um you know a hospital number a name and address and that's it you don't know anything else so yeah it's and it's shocking really like you said it's just um it's confusing if nothing else um and it just makes that that journey and that person's ac ability to access the services a lot more difficult yeah so i suppose overall basically it's a lack of social and emotional care it's yeah. just that's all that people are getting and particularly with pregnancy actually it's the social and emotional that is the most important isn't mm -hmm. it i would say because we know what an enormous difference that actually makes on the physical outcome yeah and this yeah. is you know the social and emotional um process that a woman is going through she's becoming a mother yeah. um the, the other parent is becoming a parent this is a social thing that's happening to them. It is an emotional thing that's happened to them. If we're not giving them any 
care other than clinical care uh, then there's something really really wrong with the way that we're providing health care yeah. and i guess with like maternity uh, uh, one of the ways that could help that is the the model of continuity of carer which we know you know improves things for people's experiences um so you know that that really is something that we should be aiming for across healthcare then yeah. at least teams you know even if you can't have continuity of care or a team that you've got a chance yeah. of knowing who that's it is there yeah, yeah. Absolutely. it's like when you've got the dedicated home birth teams or i know locally here we've got a dedicated um elective cesarean team so you know that you're going to get one of that small you know number of people rather than just any random midwife that decides to rock up and then they shift change you know when you if you do build a relationship with somebody it shift changes and i know it's got to change shift but and then there's a complete stranger coming in in quite late stages of the birth process it's mm, and you've never yeah. met them because there's no team working it's just whoever happens to turn up yeah yeah okay. so maddie is there anything any sort of like take home summary you want to want to give the listeners anything you want to say before we sort of wrap up i think that um what has been really interesting to me since i published that blog is that the vast majority of people their first um reaction to reading it is to say oh i'm really sorry and i hope that you have a better time or i hope you're right and i think that i want to really forcefully say that i didn't write that blog about me yeah i was just using it using my experience as a way of making much wider and far more important points about everybody and about the nhs in general yeah um so if those points resonate with you share the bloody blog don't yeah. just go oh maddie i'm really sorry you've got cancer because that's lovely but it's not helping me. Mm. It would help me to feel like going through this shit has some kind of positive outcome for everybody else. And that we start a conversation about improving the NHS and improving the training and for staff to really think about how they communicate with people. Um, and that's a really powerful message. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. No, Share the bloody blog. Yeah, <laughs> it will be shared. We will be putting the link on the podcast and, and, and sharing it. Definitely. For anyone listening, it is really well worth the read. A very, very good blog. And um, share. A read and a share. <laughs> a read and a share. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I read, I read it last night and, and yeah, I must admit, I got a little choked up in places. But amazing so the message that you're sending there maddie is really really important i think for, and for everybody to read not just healthcare professionals general public need to know this they need to know that they, you know they're able to you know give feedback to hospitals they're able to you know they've got rights um and they shouldn't have to be going through this type of care in inverted commas because i guess it doesn't really feel like care at the moment when you're not getting all those um you know things that you need uh, whilst going through the process but. well big shout out to the wonderful specialist oncology nurse who is now back from sick leave Yay. Who has a face-to-face -face appointment on the Woo. 25th which will be very reassuring to actually be looked at by a healthcare professional yeah. um they won't be able to tell me i don't think then whether my treatment has been successful but they can, I hopefully, at least tell me that it hasn't grown since they last looked at it. And just give you that reassurance and that opportunity to speak to somebody face to face. Yeah, that my, yeah. You know, that my eye is healing okay and that, you know, everything is as they would expect it to be. Yeah. That will be hugely reassuring, hopefully. So um, yeah. keep fingers crossed. Sam, do you have any last words, my lovely? I don't think there's anything to add after Maddie's last most powerful statement at the end. So, you know. 
Uh, not many people can do that, Maddie. <laughs> Sam you. normally has something to say. <laughs> yeah, other than thank you, Maddie, for coming yeah. and talking to us and for everything that you do, not just over this, but all the breastfeeding support and the training and the conversations I know you have with other doulas who need a little bit of a lift and all the things that go on in the background. Absolutely. And we're all obviously rooting for you and, you know, hoping that everything is, is good quickly and healed and, you know, there's no more issues there for you because we all love you loads. Um, so thank you, Maddie. And um, yeah, just goodbye to everybody and we'll see you on the next podcast. Bye. Bye, Bye. Thank you for listening to the Birth Activists podcast. Until next time.